In the previous lesson, we discussed the spiritual significance of the holiday Sukkot. And we explained that what takes place spiritually on this day, as well as any other holiday, is that there is a revelation of godliness. The reason why this day is considered a holy day is because godliness is revealed on this day in a greater measure than an ordinary day. Just like there are places in the world that are considered holy, like a shul, a synagogue, or the holy temple that stood in Jerusalem, because these are places where godliness is revealed in a greater measure, in a more concentrated way than any other place. The same applies to the dimension of time. That there are certain days in the year where godliness is revealed in a greater measure than ordinary days, and those are the days that are considered holy days. Specifically, in connection to Sukkot, the aspect of godliness that's revealed on that day strengthens us subconsciously. By observing the laws and customs of the holiday, we subconsciously absorb this spiritual strength that's added. And in what way does it affect us? Naturally, when one receives new additional spiritual strengths, they perform better spiritually. So our connection to God and our general conduct is much more refined, much more godly and spiritual, the way it should be. However, every holiday has its special, unique quality, and the same applies to Sukkot. What is it specifically that we are strengthened in when the holiday of Sukkot comes around? And this we explained was the concept of unity, of love for our fellow Jew. That the spiritual strength we get on this holiday specifically assists us in performing the mitzvah, performing the precept of loving our fellow Jew on a much higher level. Because this is the holiday where we get that strength to unite with one another and to have that true love that one should have for his fellow Jew. And in the previous lesson we explained how Hasidic philosophy gives a new understanding to this mitzvah, how it is unlimited, and love for a fellow Jew should extend to every Jew, regardless of his spiritual level. Then, we explain that in the Torah it says, you should love your fellow Jew like you love yourself. And the question was, how is it possible to love a stranger, a total stranger, in the same way that I love myself? After all, that person is a stranger. He's not related, not part of my family. How could the Torah demand such a thing and expect such a thing to love a total stranger like I love myself? And therefore, there are commentaries that explain that it means not to actually feel that same feeling of love, but it means on a practical level to do for others exactly the same way I would have done if this would have been for myself. I should go out of my way not to hurt someone else or to defend someone from being hurt just like I would have gone out of my way to defend myself or someone in my family from being hurt. But true, on a true and emotional level, one can't expect to feel for others what they feel for themselves. 
The Alter Rebbe, the Baratanya, the first Rebbe of Chabad, explains that in truth one could feel for others what they feel for themselves. How is that possible? And the answer is because on a physical level, naturally people come from different families and are totally not related to one another. But that's on the physical level. When you look at people and you go by the physical body, but every Jew has a soul, and if we look at the identity of the person, how he's being identified by his soul, not by his body, the souls are actually all one. They're all part and parcel of one single identity. And therefore, on that level, we are actually one. How is, why is it that all the souls are actually part of one single identity? This can be explained on two levels. First, on a simple level, and that is that all the souls originate from the soul of Adam Harishan. Adam, the first man. That means that actually all the souls were included and part of Adam Harishan. And the fact that there are hundreds and thousands and millions, billions of souls since then, they're all an extension of the soul of Adam Arishan. In fact, it's explained in Kabbalah, in mysticism, that the, the fact that we find that there are certain people that their life is mainly geared towards intellectual activity, that's because their soul comes from the part of the soul of Adam Arishan that was connected to his brain. And the fact that there are people that are more emotionally oriented is because their soul comes from the part of the soul that's connected to Adam Arishan's heart and so on and so forth. In other words, the place that the soul had in its original source, which is the soul of Adam Arishan, that determines what will be the nature and the leaning of that particular soul. One might ask, if that's the case, how is it possible if my soul comes from the part of the soul of Odomarishan that was connected to his eyes, for example. So how is my soul a perfect, complete soul with hands and feet and the ability to do everything and anything with all faculties if it originates in the part of the soul that's connected to only to Odomarishan's eyes? And the answer is that the soul, even though it comes from a specific place of the original soul, the eyes or the brain or the heart, but nevertheless, that which extends from the soul is a complete unit in itself and has its own complete identity. Because with physical things, when you take something and you cut it off or you take it from the whole, it's only a hip, it's only part. But when you're dealing with something spiritual like a soul, you can take from the origin and yet what you take could be a complete unit in itself. As an example, if you take from a flame of fire and you light a candle. So the new candle originated in the original flame, but the new fire is a perfect fire, complete fire, with all the features of fire, it's lacking nothing. And yet it became and was part of the original flame. So here too, even though this individual soul is extended from and it comes from Odom Harishan's soul and from a specific place in his soul but nevertheless 
the soul that came from it is a complete soul and a soul that's a complete uh, structure of a soul in itself. Which also explains another question that many people ask. That it says that when Mashiach comes, there will be the resurrection of the dead. And this is one of the 13 basic principles of belief that every Jew believes in the resurrection of the dead. Well, the question is, being that there's such a concept as Gilgal, which means that there are certain souls that come down to this world again, and sometimes twice. So every person might have two identities, one which he is now, and the other what he was 100 years ago or 200 years ago when he came down the first time. So when there will be resurrection of the dead, which soul will get up, the first or the second or the third? And the answer is that all three will get up. How is it possible? Because when we say that the soul comes down again, it's not necessarily the entire soul. It's a certain branch of the soul, a certain part of that soul. That comes down again. But this part is a complete unit in itself. Like the new flame that comes from the original flame, comes from the original flame, but it's a complete flame in its own merit. So, being that all the souls come from the same original source, that means that all the souls, in a sense, share the same one single identity, which is the soul of Adam Arishan. And therefore, we're all one. So if we look at a person and we only go by the physical, by the body, naturally people are different, and they have different origins, different families, and there's no way that you can possibly feel that we are in essence one. But if you look at the soul, the being that the souls all have the same origin, they're all part of one single soul, the soul of Adam Harishon, therefore, in essence, we are one. And that's, and that's why it's possible to have true love for a fellow Jew as if it was me, because in truth it is me. We all share the exact same soul. To take this a step further, that actually the origin of all souls in the spiritual realm are also one and the same source. We know that it says in Hasidus, and we've discussed this in previous lessons, that every soul has its own source. Some souls come from a higher place, some souls come from a lower place, and therefore there are certain people that at birth already stand in a higher spiritual level because they have a soul from a higher place. So by nature, they're much more spiritual. But nevertheless, the origin of all origins and the source of all sources where all the souls come from is from one and the same place. All the souls originate in the highest of all four spiritual worlds, which is the world of Atsilas. And in that world itself, it originates in the highest aspect of all the spiritual aspects, which is Chochmah. As this was explained in a previous lesson, so we won't go into it in detail now. So, this means that all the souls originally come from the same place spiritually. And therefore, they're actually all one. Let me just explain this concept a little bit more clearly. Why are they all one? In the physical realm, when two things come from the same source, that doesn't really make them that much one. Because even though they come from the same source, but nevertheless, there's a tremendous distance between them. Either a distance in time or a distance in space. For example, two people that live in two different countries. And you say they're really connected because once, 
Forty years ago, they both, as children, lived in the same city. Now, it's true, it's some connection. But basically, they're not in the same city anymore. In fact, for the last 40 years, they lived in different countries. But once upon a time, 40 years ago, they lived in the same city. So even though, even though they're in some way one, but there's a tremendous distance between them, a distance in time. And right now, there's a tremendous distance between them, a distance in space. Or if you'd say that two people, they, their ancestors were the same. This and this person, ten generations ago, was the grandfather of both of these families. So true, that one person is the grandfather of both families, but right now, there are thousands of people that belong to this family, and that, thousands of people that branched off from the other family, and there's no connection between the two. But many, many years ago, they all were connected to this one person. So even though they both have the same origin, but right now there's a tremendous distance, either the distance in time or distance in space. When you're dealing with spiritual things, the source of something does not exist in a different place. The source does not exist at a different time. But the source of something exists together and in the same place as the thing itself. For example, when you're talking about feelings, and you say a person feels a certain way. Let's say a person dislikes someone's work. And you say, you know where the dislike comes from? You know why they don't like their work? It's not because they really don't appreciate what they did. It comes from jealousy. So when I say that jealousy is the source of uh, criticism, or the jealous hate, it's not that jealousy is in one place and hate is in another place. The feeling of jealousy is the depth of the feeling of hate. The jealousy is the deeper dimension of that hate. So the source exists in the same time and the same place as the thing itself. It's only a deeper dimension of it. So therefore, if we take two things in the spiritual realm, and we say they both have the same source, what does that mean? That means that the deeper dimension of A and the deeper dimension of B is one and the same thing. So if the deeper dimension of both is actually the same thing, then they're actually both one thing. They're both part of one single identity. Again, using the analogy of feelings. For example, if a person finds very hard time finding a close friend, and they see that this person, who I was friendly with a long time, I can't find them as being my close friend, because in their presence I feel intimidated. And with this person it's no good, because in their presence I feel insecure. And this person I feel very bored. This person is too intense, and so on and so forth. And when you really look deeply into it, you find that a person has a very strong fear of being hurt because of previous experiences. And that fear of being hurt, that doesn't let them make and establish any close friendship with someone. So that means that actually they don't really feel overwhelmed or intimidated or insecure or bored. What they feel is a fear of being rejected, a fear of being hurt. And their defense mechanism makes them feel all the other feelings that come up. So that means that the deeper dimension of this boredom feeling is actually the fear of being hurt. 
this deeper dimension of feeling being taken over and losing independence, what is its deeper dimension? It's the fear of being hurt. The deeper dimension of feeling overwhelmed is actually the fear of being hurt. So this means that there aren't many different feelings here. They're actually all the same. The essence and the depth and the true identity of all the feelings is one, and that is the fear of being hurt. And the same applies to the intellectual realm. You have two concepts. And if you look deeply into it, you discover that both concepts come from the same original scientific principle. That means that they are, in essence, one principle, one concept. And the same applies to the souls. When we say that all the souls have the same original source, which is, of course, God, but what aspect in God? Chachma of Atzilus. That aspect within God is the source of all souls. If all the souls have the same original source, we say, where is the source and where is the soul? Are they in two different places? No. In the spiritual realm, there's no difference, no concept of space. Do they exist at different times? Of course not. They all exist at the same time. So what does it mean when we say that Chochmah of Atzilus, this aspect in God, is the source of the soul? What does that mean? It means it's the deeper dimension of my soul. But the same aspect of God is also the deeper dimension of your soul, and my neighbor's soul, and another person's soul. So the deeper dimension of all souls is one and the same. That means that the true identity of all souls is one and the same. And what is it that identifies a person? It's the essence. So the essence of all souls are the same. That means we are all one. And therefore, when the Torah says you should love your fellow Jew like you love yourself, it's not just comparing it to myself, but it means I can actually experience the same feeling of love for a stranger as I have for myself, because that stranger is not really a stranger. On the level of the soul, we are in essence one. So just like I have feelings for myself, and I have love for my children or my family because we're all part of one thing, one identity, the same could be to a total stranger, being that he too has a godly soul. And all the godly souls have the same identity, so therefore it is myself, and that kind of love, if I only work on it, can actually be surface. So if a person would be able to bring out the feelings that exist within the soul, and the deepest depth of the soul, they can actually experience love for any other Jew on the same level, in the same way that they have love for themselves. However, on a practical level, the question comes up, can we expect it of people like us to actually have such intense feelings? And the truth is, even if we can't live up to it on the level of feeling, but on a practical level, on a practical level, this can be accomplished. What does that mean? When we say love your fellow Jew as you would love yourself, what is the uniqueness of self-love? And basically, it's two things. There's uniqueness in that self-love. It's greater than any other love, number one in quantity, and number one in quality. What do I mean by quantity? Self-love will make me go out of my way to such an extent that no other love will do for a person.
the love that a person has for different things or different people, it's limited to a certain extent. And as much as the love is limited, that's how far I'll go out in order to do this thing which I enjoy, but not more than that. The love that one has for themselves is basically infinite, can be measured. So therefore the extent that I'll go to accommodate myself and to defend myself for survival will also be unlimited. Nothing will stop me, nothing will stand in the way from me keeping myself in existence. If that's the case, the same would apply to another person. That what does it mean to love a fellow Jew like yourself? That it would be like the self-love in terms of its quantity, how far out will I go? Unlimited. Just like I would be, I would do for myself. Then there's another thing about the self-love. And that it's, it's unique in quality. The nature of love is a different kind of love. Because we see that a person, because they have self-love, they don't see any fault within themselves. It's not that they see a fault and they will cover up on it or they'll try to get away with it. That's one possibility. But generally speaking, because of self-love, a person does not see their own faults. And even if they do see the fault, sometimes it's so clear, so black and white, it's impossible to miss. Someone else points it out to you, but you don't see it so much as a fault. You always feel, but it really can be, I can be blamed for it. This is because of my father, and this is because of my mother, and this is because of my brother, this is because of my teacher, and this is because of the weather. There's always some feeling that the fault is not so much of a fault. So first of all, you don't even see the fault in the first place. And if you do see it, you see it very light and very mild, not in a heavy way. And that's because of that self-love. So what does it mean, on a practical level, to have love for a fellow Jew like myself? It means not only that even though they have something wrong, even though they have so many faults, nevertheless I won't punish them, I won't hurt them, and I'll try to help them. But let's take that a step further. The love is to such an extent, like self-love, I don't even see the fault in the other person. And if something is pointed out to me, it's so black and white, I see it in a very light way. And I see it in a way that it's not really their fault, it's because of this, because of that, and so on and so forth. So the person who has this love for a fellow Jew, like self-love, when he looks at another person, even though that person has faults, and has very evil, negative character traits, but somehow it doesn't register in his mind. That's not what he sees. He sees other things in him. It's like the difference between an optimist and a pessimist. They both might see exactly the same thing. They both hear the exact same information. The optimist sees in it something very exciting. And the pessimist sees in it something very frightening. You might have two people, a couple, flying on an airplane. One is an optimist and the other is a pessimist. So the optimist is on this plane flying to take their vacation and he's all excited. He feels the thrill of this vacation he's looking forward to. And the pessimist is on the same plane trip. And they're full of fright and full of terror and all sorts of imaginations of what's going to happen while they're flying on this plane. Now the truth is, if you ask the pessimist, isn't there a possibility that everything should work out great and fine, you'll have a great time? Of course there's a possibility. But somehow his mind is totally obsessed 
with the negative images and pictures. That's what registers. The exciting part somehow is not registering. The optimist is just the opposite. All the exciting things about the trip, that's what registers. If you would ask him, isn't there a possibility that these other persons, the fears that the other person is afraid of might happen? He'll answer, yes, it's true. But somehow they just don't register. And all he feels is the excitement. And the same with the person who loves his fellow Jew with that same love as he loves himself. He doesn't see the negativity in the other person. It just doesn't register. And if the negativity is pointed out to him, he sees it in such a light, in such a way, that it's not as negative as everybody else sees it. This rabbi was once speaking from the pulpit. And somebody in the crowd suddenly stands up and shouts out with great excitement, Rabbi, I know where you got this speech from. I saw it the other day in this and this book. And the rabbi's face turns as red as a beet. And naturally, the reaction of the people in the crowd, everybody is whispering to one another, what a terrible person, what a monster, what an animal. How could he do such a thing? To be so insensitive, to be so hurting. And this person's father is sitting in the crowd, and he grabs his head and says to himself, what a fool, how could you be so foolish? Which means... He sees that the act that was done wasn't done out of hate, wasn't done out of evil, it was done out of foolishness. And in fact, that is definitely true. Sometimes a person can do something and hurt someone else, but not because they mean to hurt. In fact, their intentions might have even been to do something positive. But they were so foolish and so stupid that they did something which was very damaging. In fact, there's a saying from the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Rebbe of Chabad, that the damage that a fool can do with his foolishness is much worse than the damage that a Russia, a wicked person, could do with his wickedness. Because the fool doesn't even know what he's doing. So the father, because he loves his son, doesn't see the evil in it. He sees it as foolishness. The stranger immediately sees that this is evil and this is the worst kind of character trait a person could possibly have and they're criticizing him terribly. There was once a man in the shul of Reb Levitzegobarditchev that he saw out the window there was somebody who was getting ready to go on a trip so he was greasing the wheels of his wagon to get ready for the trip. And while he was doing this he was davening, he was praying and he was taken aback. How could a person do something like that? And as he saw the Rebbe, Reb Levitzegobarditchev walk by he got so excited and lost himself that he pointed to this person and said, Rebbe, look at this person. In the middle of davening, of praying, he's greasing the wheels of his wagon. Rebbe Levi Yitzhak looked at that person, lifted his hands to the heaven and said, God, such wonderful, wonderful children you have. Even when they're greasing the wheels of their wagon, they think about you and they sing to you and they praise you. He saw the person from a different angle completely. He didn't see anything negative in other Jews. But this too is a very high level to reach. That you should love another person to such a degree like self-love to the point that you don't even see any negative in another person. Most of us are not on that level. However, on a practical level what we could do is act as if we would have that level of love. How's that? A person who actually has this love for a fellow Jew which is like self-love doesn't see the fault in another person. 
those that are on our level, that don't have this great level of love, we act as if we don't see the faults in another person, which means we don't allow our minds to be entertained with thoughts about the faults in other people. So when the thought comes to my mind about another person's fault, because I did see the fault, I dismiss that thought immediately. I don't allow it to entertain my mind. Just like a Jew is not allowed to have his mind be entertained with thoughts of idolatry, or other thoughts which are unrefined thoughts, the same way I'm not even allowed to have my thought entertained with the bad in other people. And once I condition myself, once and again and another time, and I kind of train my mind that whenever a thought of other people's fault and negativity just comes to my mind, immediately it's rejected and I don't think about it, I switch to think about something else, eventually I become conditioned to not allow other people's negativity to enter my mind and to entertain my mind. And this is the way we can practically fulfill this level of love. True, on an emotional level, I don't actually experience such intense love for my fellow Jew, but on a practical level, I act in a way as if it was that. And that is by conditioning myself not to even entertain thoughts that have to do with other people's negative character traits.